Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this evening. Today we'll be looking at the work of a feeder, Union Aid Abroad, in the Pacific this time with Katie Hepworth. She'll be talking about PNG, Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. And a recording which was made at the Unitarian Church, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, with activist Joan Coxidge speaking about the Middle East. Food Not Bombs, I'm quite sure you've heard about them. Today we'll be hearing how it all began and where it is now with Steph. And Shandevra Singh, who's been campaigning against prisons for many, many years A couple of weeks ago he spoke on the sewer program and I played part one of his talk which was talking about the prison of young people, particularly in New South... No, it wasn't New South Wales, it was the Northern Territory in Queensland. Well, today the other part of the interview, which was broadcast on the sewer show, talks about the fact that we have so many people in private prisons in Australia. And also the situation in Zimbabwe where it could be the end of President Robert Mugabe. But as someone said, he's um, been in trouble before. We'll see what happens there. And the Philippines where Duterte is sort of stirring the possum with the US and with dreadful number of people being executed there at the moment. So that's today. So let's hear it first from Mr Kevin Healy with his Week That Was. A week, Jane, listener, when the world's biggest economies and their biggest corporate leaders got together in China to make the world a better place for all of us. And big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull began by lecturing the world, warning the world about slow economic growth and the dangers of protectionism. And we can be sure, we can but imagine those representing the world, self-important politicians and world corporate leaders they serve, hung on his every word. In fact, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world corporate leader Chuck Bloated the Fourth spoke for all of them, expressing his appreciation of Malcolm's advice. Who's that smart-ass guy? He poured another scotch. How'd he get it? Hoping to get in in the U.S. of would-be big supremo Donald um, Trample the Poor headed to Mexico to build bridges over building fences and told them building a fence would be a joint venture. We'll build it and you'll pay for it. Donald returned home to announce the Mexican Big Supremo had agreed to pay for it. And the Mexican Big Supremo then said there was no way Mexico would pay for it, proving Donald's point that you just can't trust these Mexicans. And while Malcolm was enjoying Chinese hospitality and advising the world but world back here, this socialist senator Sam Bastardry has come under attack for accepting money from a Chinese businessman to pay a travel bill. Senator Bastardry is a puppet of the Chinese Communists. Attorney General George Brandy's brain looked very concerned. 
Uh, but George, your party has taken huge donations, millions, from Chinese businesses. There is no relationship. We are dealing with Chinese capitalists who respect market forces, who generate employment and profit for the common good, unlike evil communists who are the antithesis of the common good and their supporters, their puppets like Senator Bastardry. Uh, the same business that paid his bill gave you millions. There is no doubt this business gives money to the Caring Business Class Party in its capacity as a responsible market forces capitalist business in a capitalist country, but pays Senator Bastardry's bill as a communist country, trapping him in the evil communist web to support their aggression in the South China Sea, which everyone knows is a legal maritime possession of the US of, recognised as such by the US of, and therefore by True Blue Aussie. The US of was also fighting aggression in another US of possession when Iranian boats came threateningly close to the US of train killer fleet off the Iranian coast. We need no more proof of the aggressive intent of the Iranian government than this presence of Iranian boats off the Iranian coast encroaching on USR maritime territory, Fleet Commander Charles Porter III exploded righteously. As the world watchdog and protector of liberty, freedom and democracy, we know the US of can sue any company or person in any part of the world for breaking its corporate profit laws. And we learned this week it gave thousands to a whistleblower who allowed it to find our, our very own, well, these days someone else's very own, BHP Town, bloody huge profits, for trillions, prompting the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review to comment on how the whistleblower Whistleblower laws so encourage corporate whistleblowers. So what great news for Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. We can but ponder on what massive compensation they'll cop from the good old God bless America US of government. Following a renewable energy report, the Minister for Fossils, Josh Freidem Icebergs, denied an interviewer's suggestion and arguments in a long-haired commie minority report the government wasn't working hard enough on the issue. That's rubbish. Josh made a lot of sense. Convincing people, or at least enough people, that you're doing something about the issue while doing absolutely nothing is bloody hard work. Excited scenes in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin newsroom Thursday night as a breathless journo dashed into the editor's office. The, the government's been rolled three times on the floor of the house, she panted. Fantastic, great news. Hold the front page. Socialist government crisis. Rebels turn on Dan. Evil union power smashed. With up an editorial, Dan has no choice but to resign. Uh, no, 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 not Dan, uh, Malcolm, the, the federal government. Oh, um, oh, uh, look, look, inside left-hand page, uh, socialists abuse power, socialists play games to camouflage policy vacuum, uh, bury it, it, it's so insignificant. No, seriously, good to see the leader of government business in the House, Christopher Payne, in there, declare, direct quote, there's no point in making a point out of, etc., which I thought redolent of his usual common sense and logic, because if the point was made to point the finger, it would point at him. So, good point, Christopher. 
And given this is Child Protection Week, we thought we'd get an endorsement from those who cherish dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus and respect, fight for the rights of all children. It is imperative that we do nothing to abuse the rights of dear little children. Our very own Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, expressed true humanity. As the dear baby Jesus himself said, do unto others as you would do unto me. And don't forget, they strung him up. Whereas we don't go that far, we accommodate dear little children on idyllic Pacific islands. Back on state big supremo hoo-hoo, whom Lord Rupert calls the pejorative Dan, the whopping sin had this blazing headline that Dan had met an evil union boss and had not recorded the meeting in his diary. Worse, the week that was could reveal, in yet another exclusive, on June 11 last year at 9.42am, Dan went to the toilet and failed to mention that in his diary. Despite Lord Rupert's conviction, not the criminal sort but the other sort, that the pejorative Dan is a rabid socialist, it's a bit questionable because after Dan banned the onomatopoeic fracking, he was attacked by one of the country's great socialists who spent years serving the underprivileged and now serves the underprivileged, under-attacked great resource industries. Yes, that working-class hero, Martin Cliché. At the end of a day... When the sun sits, after dinner and after supper, looking at the bottom line through the window of opportunity, and here's where Martin's rabid socialism runs riot, this will inflict real economic harm for no environmental gain. And he iterated the industry's guarantees that getting fracked is as safe as an Italian earthquake zone. But in the other place, the Canberra other place, never thought we'd be calling for help from that appalling Hoonsun. I'll come back to this, but as, as an aside, bit of a commotion in that appalling's office the other morning when an assistant clearly said the wrong thing. Hello, he burst in to start the, works, the day's work. No hello, that appalling screeched. No hello, bad Islam. I just said hello, not halal. It sounds the same. Hello is an Islamic plot to seduce good true blue Aussies. Thus, that appalling office has begun a campaign to ban hello, a private member's ban hello bill, as they continue to save white true blue Aussie from itself. Haven't we got to be careful, vigilant against racist threats to our language? Thank you, that appalling. But I digress. Never thought we'd be calling for help from that appalling Hoonsun, but she must, like us, be so distressed, so angry at this latest racist move in her state. After removing that great explorer of this great country, Air, from the rock named after him, Uluru, where did that racist name come from? These racist terra nullius people taking advantage of the foot in the door. We knew they wouldn't stop there, wouldn't be satisfied, and now Stradbroke Island, named by another great white discoverer in this great country, the terra nullius parvenus, people who weren't even here when the great explorers and discoverers explored and discovered. Now the same terra nullius racists want to change Stradbroke Island to Menjeribar. Menjeribar. 
claiming it predates Stradbroke. Well, Lord Stradbroke was the father of the great man who named it, predates, when the island was clearly terra nullius. The King of England said so. And for goodness sake, the biggest horse race in that state is the Stradbroke Handicap. Imagine if the racers got away with calling this great race the Menjerabar Handicap. That's the sort of consequence that occur when racers run riots. So let's call on that appalling Hoonsun to ensure our white sacred history and sacred sites are preserved. Finally, we might complain about obscene salaries for those who understand the greatest little economic order of them all, but the big supremo of developer Stockland for Profits, who also heads the Property Profits Council of True Blue Aussie, earned every cent of his obscene salary with his insight into why so many people can't get into the housing market. Affordability is the defining issue, he informed us. Who would have thought? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And Kevin will be back on the airwaves at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for a whole hour of City Limits. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. AFIDA Union Aid Abroad has over 40 training projects working with 30 separate project partners in 15 countries, assisting many different communities in Southeast Asia, the Pacific, the Middle East, Southern Africa and the Caribbean. Today the focus is the Pacific and I'm speaking with AFIDA's Pacific Project Officer Katie Hepworth who has visited a number of the project partners in the past month. The first we focused on was the Solomon Islands where after 13 years the Australian Government's Regional Assistance Mission is drawing to a close. A massive expenditure of $2.6 billion to pay for restoring stability in a small country. But transforming Solomon Islands into one of the most government-to-government aid-dependent countries in the world. Katie, I think it would be fair to say that AFIDA's assistance to grassroots communities in the Solomon Islands is in total contrast to the Australian Government's Ramsey role. Who are your partners in Solomon Islands? Our major partner at the moment is the Solomon Islands Association for Community Learning Centres and that partner organisation that AFIDA has helped to set up over the last 10 years. Uh, the organisation represents community learning centres across the Solomon Islands and these are something that's very particular to the Solomon Islands education system. They're community-led and run places of learning where people that go off to get vocational or technical education come back to rural communities and pass on the things that they've learned to other people in the community. They were set up in the 80s to pick up really um, the people that had sort of left school with 
in year six or who had never had any schooling at all and so were starting to flood into the urban areas and that beginning of the urban drift. So the community learning centres were about trying to get people to stay in their rural communities and give them other opportunities to earn income and find possibilities to remain close to home. We started supporting them through a small grants program that allowed them to put on training that was suitable to them and really it's our partners are spread out across the Solomon Islands in these 26 different communities that have independently set up centres of learning. Very diverse people in the Solomons. Yes, it is. I mean, I think there's over 70 languages and they say it's one of the most linguistically dense places in the world after PNG and, you know, from matrilineal to patrilineal societies and very big cultural differences between islands and even within the same island. And what's happening with climate change? Is it affecting their ability to farm in those areas and that's forcing people to move to towns? So that's one of the issues. So when we think about climate change, relocation, we often think of the big mobility. So things like the Cataract Islands or Kiribati and Tuvalu where the atolls are going to become completely uninhabitable. But what we're seeing in the Solomon Islands in our communities is that it's just getting harder and harder to farm. So yields are going down, but also cyclones are completely destroying crops. So that can remove food for an entire year or more. And communities are needing to find other ways to supplement food in order to ensure food security. Sometimes that means sending someone across to town to work or even to Australia or New Zealand on the seasonal worker program to earn income to support the rest of the family that remains at home. Is land being eroded or salt water coming up through the land? It is. We're seeing different islands are getting different effects. So some of the atolls are amongst the first that are seeing climate change relocation. So up in the north, some of the atolls, people have had to move off the islands and they've become completely uninhabitable. But the places where we're working, what we're more seeing is salt water is coming up through the land, but also just the changes in temperature means that there's changes in pests changes in rainfall and so crops aren't maturing at the same time or with the same kind of frequency or reliability that allow people to kind of plan the farming year. In response to that we've now started an aquaculture project in East Guadalcanal which is the main island to help communities diversify their sources of protein because what they're seeing as well is it's not just the farm yields but it's also the sea yields that are going down so by having aquaculture ponds these communities get more access to protein, which is one thing that would be lacking. And how are they managed, the farms? By households. So we're helping each household to learn how to establish their own pond. So we're giving them training in both climate change, adaptation and aquaculture production. And from that training, each household can build a small pond, can dig a small pond, sorry, establish their own ponds and their own fingling. So it's not that it will be a community-level pond. What they've found is it's more successful if each household, and that's usually an extended family group, manages a pond. And what sort of fish are they producing? It's Mozambique tilapia, which I've been told isn't the most exciting or delicious fish, but they do thrive in the Solomon Islands. So it's quite a small fish, about 20 centimetres long. It's not as nice as the fish that they get from the reef but it does, when they can't get out to sea because of cyclones or bad weather or other crops fail, it does help supplant that income. What about vegetables? It's taro and other root vegetables like manioc and also the fern. 
is another thing that they eat a lot of. We haven't been helping them with that side of it, but we have been collaborating in the past with um, an organisation, Custom Garden, that's looking at re-establishing traditional farming methods and trying to help farmers resist, I guess, cash cropping and monocultural production. You talked about pests coming in. What about the health impacts for the people of the different diseases that are coming with climate change? I'm not an expert on the diseases from climate change, but one of the things we have noticed is that with declining yields, people become more and more reliant on white rice, on tuna and things like that for basically to meet their calorie needs. And what we're seeing is while people might be able to meet their calorie needs by buying food at the local shops, there's a huge increase in nutritional deficiency. So they're not getting a kind of the nutrients, they're not getting the minerals and other things that they need for a fully balanced diet. So there's this kind of hidden food insecurity there that while people might be getting enough food day to day and not going hungry, they're still getting stunted growth in children and things like that just because they're not getting the full diversity of vegetables and reef fish and other things. Also alongside that is increases in diabetes and other diseases like that because of an increase in eating starch and white rice and things. You're also involved with helping people to understand climate change and take an active part in discussions about it? This project is looking at a community level basis so one of the things that we're doing is trying to get um, women more involved in climate adaptation programs. What we've found is that women are often the ones with a lot of the knowledge about climate change because they're and the effects of climate change because they're responsible for household gardens. However, when you get into large community forums, they're often the ones that remain silent and their knowledge isn't understood or accepted within those forums. So as part of the work that we're doing with communities is to work with women to understand that the changes that they're seeing are in fact due to climate change. They're not just a year-to-year variation and work with them and their communities to um, find a way to include their knowledge within broader climate change debates. As we get towards the end of the project, we're organising community forums where they are given the opportunity to share that knowledge with other communities throughout the association's network. And so hopefully through that, with a kind of train-the-trainer or skill-share program, is to actually build this awareness across the entire Solomon Islands Community Learning Centre network. Is there a great concern amongst the people that more and more will be forced off their land and become migrants in other places? Across the Pacific, I guess it's a really fraught thing to talk about climate change migration. You'll notice the government of Kiribati, for example, has got a program of 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 migration with dignity, but even that is very polarising because there's still a lot of trauma amongst people of the Pacific to actually talk about climate change migration. There's still a resistance, I think, to, to speak publicly about climate change migration because I think people are still hoping very much that we can do something to stop this from happening and that if they talk too publicly about the need to migrate or start talking publicly about plans to migrate, that the countries that are most responsible for climate change will actually stop acting because the urgency will be gone. So I think at the moment there is still a desire to stay on the land and still a resistance to talk about the need to move, even though people will talk about how difficult it is getting to stay. You've also visited Vanuatu recently and it's now 
about 18 months since tropical cyclone Pam, there were very few injuries or deaths considering the ferocity of the storm. When were you there last and what did you see? So about a month ago and I was there to follow up on really the Cyclone Pam response from the year before and also to work with unions around the seasonal worker program in Australia. So that's around farm workers that are coming from Vanuatu and across the Pacific to Australia. What I saw, I guess, in Port Vila was that a lot of the rebuilding had happened, but there were still signs of of the cyclone in town. So there was still, when you drove through the settlements, you could still see places where there were tarps providing shelter and that houses still hadn't been completely rebuilt. Port Villa itself, when I was first there, only two weeks after the cyclone, had been substantially cleared and what was seen is just trees stripped bare of all their leaves, of palm trees completely denuded of their palm leaves, just the trunk standing up of huge trees that had fallen over and their roots being exposed. And a lot of those large trees are still lying along the sides of the road on the side. They just haven't been broken down and haven't been done. Now we're seeing the coconuts are coming back, the papaya is coming back, the household gardens are coming back, but that has taken, for the coconuts and other longer-term vegetables and the root vegetables, it's taken the full year for people to start living off that food that they grow and not importing that from other islands. The cost of fruit and vegetables in the markets is still quite high in the centre of Port Villa. So I think we often just see the immediate impact of the cyclone and the destruction of shelter, but from a distance we don't see the longer-term effects and the fact that agricultural yields are affected for two to three years afterwards and have a big impact on communities that instead of being able to survive from their own farms are having to pay exorbitant amounts for food that's coming in from other islands. And of course it was the outer islands that were the the worst hit. Have you travelled to any of those? Titana, no, I haven't unfortunately, but um, I'd love to go there another on a future trip. What's happening with schools and hospitals, clinics, that sort of thing that would have been damaged, maybe not destroyed, but damaged? That was one of the major targets for things like the Red Cross. So they were some of the first things to be re-established by the larger humanitarian organisations. I think going in and repairing school roofs and trying to get schools up and functioning again was a big priority for UNICEF and Red Cross when I was first there because what it does is it puts the structure back into children. So that starts to deal with a lot of the psychosocial impacts of cyclones but I haven't been directly involved in the the schools or the clinic nature, but the schools were the major things. I don't think the the clinics have been as badly affected. Of course, in Port Vila, they had the problem that the main hospital was full of asbestos, so after the cyclone, over 100 kilos of asbestos was released into the air and onto the ground, which was a major health risk, and we still don't know what the longer-term impacts of that will be, and that's going to be a problem in future cyclones across the region. Is it a fact of... In the immediate after, aftermath of a cyclone like this, they get a lot of help, but as the time goes by, people move on to other disasters and they get forgotten. Yeah, I think that's the case. And I think there's often attention to the immediate emergency needs, and as I mentioned, but not, I guess, the longer-term re-establishing of livelihoods. And so a feeder's priority in getting involved in humanitarian work like Cyclone Pam is not to do the work of the immediate emergency 
but to work with communities in that medium and long term and helping community structures to rebuild. So the two projects that we did, one was about helping spice farmers, vanilla farmers, to re-establish vanilla and other spice farms and the reason that we chose to do that is that it was organised cooperatives of farmers that had lost their major source of income and so AFIDA came in because it helped re-establish organised cooperatives of farmers and other things that wouldn't happen and the other work that we did was working with unions to support communities to rebuild housing, working within existing settlement structures and settlement organisational structures to rebuild housing. Are people still traumatised by Because it was a huge storm, wasn't it? Yeah, I think there's still a lot of memory about it. People don't really talk about the trauma of the cyclone so much. Um, I think you still... I think young children still worry about the cyclones coming in. Older people have lived through other big cyclones before, although, of course, this one was much bigger than that, much bigger than anything that had come before that. But I think there is a degree to which people do get used to to cyclones happening. It's just the, the exhaustion of having to rebuild every time and the level of destruction on this one and the fear that this is just going to become more and more common these days so that they'll never get back to the baseline of what they had before. Where are the seasonal workers going? The seasonal workers are going to farms across Australia. Some have met people in rural New South Wales, in Queensland, who are going across to farm blueberry farms and asparagus farms in Victoria, even to Tasmania. Are they being treated properly? No. I think there's huge stories of exploitation in the sector and that goes for all workers in the sector but particularly migrant workers. We've heard stories of people getting paid $1.21 an hour because they've been put onto piece rates where they only get paid for the amount that they pick on the farm um, and that compares to an award of around $22 an hour that they should get paid. On top of that, employers are able to take out deductions for accommodation and for transport and there is currently no limit to what is a reasonable deduction for housing. So we've seen examples of people paying double, triple, even more for um, the market rate for a house that's provided by their employer and obviously this gets taken out by the employer with any excess remaining in the employer's pocket. Is there supposed to be a government department monitoring what's happening to the seasonal workers? Both the Department of Employment and the Department of Immigration monitor the process. So the Department of Employment is responsible for accrediting employers. The Fair Work Ombudsman is responsible for investigating cases of exploitation. The difficulty is, is that workers are often isolated on their farms They fear deportation if they complain about exploitation because their visa is tied to their their employer. So their ability to stay in Australia is tied to them keeping their visa, which is tied to their employer. Where workers have complained about exploitation in the past, there have been examples of them being threatened with the cancellation of their visa and being kicked out of the country. And when workers have requested the Department of Employment and Department of Immigration to change their visa to another employer, they've been told that there is no option under the current visa scheme. So there are real problems with how that scheme is being run and the opportunities for for workers. But there are now moves to organise workers into unions and so collectively they can actually fight 
against this exploitation with alleviate some of the risk that they face of removal from Australia. I'd imagine it's also difficult for Australian unions to get access to these these workers. The farmers would stop them coming in. Under the legislation, the farmers have to allow unions into the on-arrival briefing, but of course it's very difficult once people are in the country to find out where these farms are. So the remoteness is really difficult for organising for organising workers. But there has been attempts to organise workers by the National Union of Workers to organise workers in country before they leave to come to Australia as well. So in a sense, they're no better off than they would be if they'd stayed home. For some of them, no. I mean, I think probably there are a lot that go back with a lot more than they would if they had if they stayed home but there are stories of people going back with nothing or having to borrow money but still a lot of people do go back with they manage to earn in six months what they would otherwise earn at home in a year but that doesn't justify them being paid less than Australian workers so there is an argument I've heard from some labour hire companies that even if they're being paid under the Australian minimum wage it's still much higher than they would get paid in Vanuatu but as a union organisation we don't think that any workers should get paid less than Australian any migrant workers should get paid less than Australian workers and then those workers families have to fend for themselves while the breadwinner is away that's right so there are big issues around people being out of the country for three to six months at a time and so workers that come from Vanuatu or from Fiji or other places that in the Pacific are making huge sacrifices in order to bring back money to support their families. You know, they often leave small children behind. People that I've met have sort of two- and five-year-old children that they've left behind for six months at a time, and they do this over multiple seasons in order to bring back money and to build housing, to send their children to school, and to make a better life for their families. Your most recent visit was just a week ago Yep. to PNG. What's the story in PNG? We went there to meet with the unions, but also to meet with... We also spoke to a number of students that had been protesting against Peter O'Neill, had been calling on Peter O'Neill to step down due to um, corruption charges that had been levelled against him. Did you speak to any of the students who'd been injured or protesting? We did manage to speak to a few of the students that have been injured and protesting. Many of them are still in a lot of pain. Um, They haven't received adequate treatment for... The gunshot wounds, still some of them are suffering internal bleeding and other major problems as a result of the students. I just got word last night that um, classes are due to start back on the 5th of September. The university, after the shootings, put classes on hold and put the academic year on hold and it was meant to start again on the 5th of September. Classes will go back on the 5th of September but the university is currently refusing to allow any of the student leaders to come back to class. And the academics union has said that if the the university does not reverse its position by the end of today, then they will be going on strike in support of the students and their ability to return to class. A very unstable government there. It is, it is. I mean, there was a vote of no confidence in which O'Neill did manage to retain government, but um, there have been allegations of corrupt dealings with regards to the vote of no confidence. It's difficult to know whether or not those allegations are true, but that's what's being alleged across the media. Are unionists in Port Moresby assisting the students? Are they working with them? There have been conversations between unions and the student movement, but the student movement was 
an independent movement. There's been allegations that the student movement was being directed by the opposition parties or by other political entities, but very much the student movement emerged organically and University of PNG and other universities across PNG have a history of quite militant student action and taking long strikes and long actions against the government. So the students have been working independently and going out to their provinces to organise within their own communities a huge petition of tens of thousands of um, signatories to protest against corruption in the PNG government. Did you get involved at all with women in PNG? Because it is a, a very sad place for women. Domestic violence is probably one of the highest countries in the world. That wasn't a focus of this trip. I mean, this trip was really to join in to... Um, the, just to really connect with the trade union movement over there as well as the student movement. So I didn't specifically connect with women's organisations at the moment. But yes, domestic violence is probably... PNG probably has one of the highest rates of domestic violence in the world outside a war zone. But, for, but there are some very, very strong women's organisations that refuse to be classified as victims and are strongly fighting for changes to... I guess both the legislation around prosecuting domestic violence and how it's understood under the law and also to community attitudes towards domestic violence and gender-based violence. And what gains have the union movement been able to achieve? Union movements generally have organised collective agreements within their workplaces. quite a different movement to the movement in Australia in which it's been focusing a lot on workplace issues and getting increases in wages for workers. They have also been lobbying at the moment around trying to get more PNG workers into the big extractives projects across the across the country. But at the moment, they're going through a rejuvenation period, and there is this there's this desire amongst the union movement that has been very inward focused to relaunch itself as a strong and vibrant movement to build political power within the country. And that was Katie Hepworth. Katie's the Pacific officer with FIDA, the Union Aid Abroad, and been travelling around the islands more this year than maybe last year, and hopefully we'll be able to speak to Katie again after her next visits. You are listening to 3CR and you're listening to Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. I'm here till 6 this evening on 855am. 3CR Digital. On the web, it's 3cr.org.au. You can stream, you can podcast, do all sorts of exciting things. 3cr.org.au. Common Ground Festival is back this November, featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Waramara, The Deans, plus loads more. Complementing the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. And next we have a recording of the talk given by political and social activist Joan Coxage at the Unitarian Church, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. As High Commissioner from 1920 to 1923, Sir Percy Cox presided over the birth of modern Iraq, 
when he drew red lines on a map, said to be the climax of his career, but he left a fledgling nation fraught with political, ethnic and religious problems which have bedeviled Iraq and the Middle East ever since. When the Brits left in 1932 after installing a monarchy, the country was a shambles, and it took until 1958 before Iraq shook off the last remnants of foreign control when the British installed Hashemite regime of King Faisal II, cousin of Jordan's King Hussein, was overthrown in a bloody coup. In 1926, France carved Lebanon out of Syria, which it seized from the Ottoman Turks for the precise purpose of creating a pro-Western enclave in the eastern Mediterranean. In 1943, France granted the country independence, where the presidency would go to a Maronite Christian, the post of prime minister would go to a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of the National Assembly would go to a Shiite Muslim, and so on throughout the ranks. Lebanon's internal political balance was further strained by the influx of 120,000 refugees from Palestine in 1948, driven from their homes following the establishment of Israel. In 1958, Arab nationalist forces threatened to topple the archaic system and the US sent in the Marines and continued to intervene whenever its interests were threatened. Today, the fate of the Palestinians, now half a million, remains unresolved, being denied Lebanese citizenship or any political representation. And their displacement is the key regional factor that draws Lebanon's neighbours, Syria and Israel, into Lebanon's internal struggles. In 1951 in Iran, Mossadegh was appointed Premier. A fierce nationalist, Mossadegh called for the nationalisation of the oil fields, which brought him into conflict with Iran's pro-Western elites and the Shah, who had dismissed Mossadegh but was forced to reinstate him after massive public riots. And then in 1953, the CIA, fearing Iran was moving into the Soviet orbit, orchestrated a coup helped by pro-Shah forces. The Shah quickly returned to power and immediately signed over 40% of Iran's oil fields to US companies and became one of America's most trusted allies and a very brutal leader. Mossadegh died under house arrest in 1967 and in 1978 the Shah was toppled from power. To better understand how we've reached such a diabolical state of affairs, we need to go back a few years earlier to the end of World War II, when Britain was broke and Europe was broken and incapable of defending their extensive international interests. The US stepped into the breach, imposing its religion, anti-communism, onto the rest of the world. Almost immediately, the Americans started their Cold War campaign that got very hot at times. Fundamental rights were qualified, and the American Republic was replaced by the national security state. And if you flip over the rock of American foreign policy since that time, out crawl a litany of horrors, invasions, bombings, overthrowing governments, suppressing movements for social change, assassinating political leaders, perverting elections, manipulating unions and manufacturing news and so on. It's the only nation that has dropped nuclear bombs and sells and uses depleted uranium. During that time, the US bombed 21 countries deliberately and claims it bombed Pakistan, Macedonia and Bulgaria by mistake. 
For the past 25 years, the US, Britain, France and some others, with Australia tagging along behind, has laid waste to a span of territory stretching several thousands of miles from North Africa to Central Asia, where a huge number of the region's people have been killed, left homeless and desperate, and have fled anywhere they can, creating an avalanche of refugees. But when I visited Iraq in 1981 with a trade union delegation, it was secular and strong, full of turquoise tiled domes and minarets with reminders of its ancient past in 10,000 archaeological sites. In Nineveh and Ur, writing literature flourished when the West lived in the Dark Ages. When we were there, Shia and Sudi lived next door to each other and married each other. And there was free health care and education, and women went to university and were doctors and teachers and enjoyed the highest status in the region. Saddam's deputy, Tarak Aziz, was a Christian. We met many Palestinians who had sought refuge in Iraq. We travelled freely throughout the country, even spending time up north in a troubled Kurdish region where we could see the distant mountains of Turkey. One night in Erbil, in the east, we heard the sounds of gunfire and were told that Iraq had gone to war with its neighbour, Iran, a war that was manna from heaven for the West. Here were two sides, both armed to the teeth by Washington at each other's throats. Iraq won, and Saddam Hussein, once Washington's man, had got too big for his boots and had to be cut down. Like Diem in Vietnam, Noriega in Panama, and Milosevic in the former Yugoslavia. The destruction of Yugoslavia was the model used by Washington for its invasions of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. Saddam, like the others, was demonized and elevated as a major threat to the region, but ignore the bull. This was a war about oil, about Israel, about territorial control and feeding the profits of the giant armaments industry. The White House cowboys decided to take out Iraq, restructure the entire region and, above all, consolidate US control over the oil-rich Persian Gulf. This was spelled out when the US oil company testified to the US Congress that a pipeline to Afghanistan was crucial to move Caspian Basin oil to the Indian Ocean. Apart from sitting on a sea of oil, Saddam Hussein led the only Middle East nation capable of standing up to Israel and to US-backed Arab regimes. Washington cranked up its anti-Saddam propaganda, claiming he was about to invade Saudi Arabia. The Pentagon made a mint out of that lie. It sold the Saudis $21 billion worth of military hardware to defend their corrupt, despotic throne. Weeks later, the Saudis said, whoops, sorry, we made a mistake. Iraq never intended to invade our country, but too late to avoid the carnage. Despite huge protests around the world, the US and its allies went to war on the basis of another lie, that they were liberating Kuwait, as if it was a real country with real freedoms when for 200 years it had been run by the corrupt, brutal Al-Sabah clique. A few facts slipped out. We learned that Saddam Hussein had been given the green light to invade Kuwait by US Ambassador April Glasby and that a PR outfit called Hill and Knowlton were paid more than $11 million to act for the citizens for free Kuwait, a phony mob to blitz the media on the need for war. 
Scandalously untrue stories and film clips about Iraqi atrocities were planted in the media. Do you remember the one about Iraqi soldiers removing babies from incubators? A pack of lies told by a 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl to the US Congress who turned out to be the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador. A crucial time when Congress was deciding whether or not to go to war. Go to war they did, trying out their diabolical new weapons. 43 days of 90,000 round-the-clock bombing runs that shredded human beings and burned and blinded. General Schwarzkopf's strategy of denying the enemy an infrastructure meant bombing Iraq's water. It meant bombing its fuel, its electricity supplies, its food distribution, its schools and hospitals, its residential areas. Raw sewage flowed in the streets. Diseases that had been eradicated reappeared. People in one residential area in Basra near a bridge whose homes and shops were destroyed by US planes failing to hit it became so desperate they wanted to bomb the bridge themselves so the Yankees would stop hitting them. By the end of Gulf War I, nearly 90% of Iraq's industrial workforce became instantly unemployed with God knows how many killed and maimed. The shooting war was followed by eight years of brutal sanctions, presided over by the US who scuttled every attempt to lift them. And in 1988, the US unleashed yet another shooting war, Operation Desert Storm, when Iraq was already on its knees. And in 2003, George Bush II unleashed a full-scale invasion using 9-11 as a smokescreen when Iraq had nothing whatever to do with it, a catastrophe that destroyed what was left of old Iraq and its famous museums full of archaeological treasures, fractured the Arab world by deliberately stirring up ethnic and religious divisions that directly led to the rise of al-Qaeda, ISIS, the al-Nusra Front, and other ultra-right-wing Islamist groups. Saddam was hunted down and brutally killed. There was no al-Qaeda or ISIS in Iraq until the US went to war. The same for Libya and Syria. For most of its history, the Libyan peoples were subjected to various degrees of foreign control. Its last oppressor, Italy, occupied the country in 1911, claiming it was a war of liberation against Ottoman rule when it was a ferocious pacification war in an attempt to re-establish a Roman Empire in Africa. Mussolini's generals incarcerated the entire population in a huge concentration camp when more than 300,000 perished in the most appalling conditions. Allied forces kicked them out in 1943, And in 1944, King Sheikh Idris, a close ally of the British, returned from exile, was anointed as king and represented Libya in all subsequent UN negotiations. In 1959, oil was discovered, and Libya, one of the world's poorest, became extremely rich, except the wealth was concentrated in the hands of the few under Idris. Discontent crew with calls for a more unified Arab entity, In 1969, inspired by the example of NASA in Egypt, Colonel Gaddafi and a small group of army officers staged a coup d'etat and kicked out the ailing Idris, abolished the monarchy, nationalised the oil industry, kicked out foreign bases and built health clinics, schools, public housing and implemented reforestation campaigns in the name of the new Libyan Arab Republic with the slogan, Freedom Socialism and unity. 
giving Libyans the highest standard of living and life expectancy in Africa. Fewer Libyans lived below the poverty line than in the Netherlands. And I wonder how many know about the close alliance between Nelson Mandela and Gaddafi. Back in the 70s and 80s, when the West called Mandela a terrorist and refused to put sanctions in place against apartheid South Africa, it was Gaddafi who supported him and paid for the training and education of ANC fighters, a bond that became even stronger after Mandela was released from jail. As soon as he was free, Mandela broke the UN embargo and paid a visit to Tripoli, where he was shown the ruins of the Gaddafi compound, which was bombed by the US under Ronald Reagan in 1986, an attempt to murder the entire Gaddafi family, but only succeeded in killing Gaddafi's infant daughter. Mandela stated, the attitude of the US is a threat to world peace. If there is a country that has committed unspeakable atrocities in the world, it is the US of A. They don't care for human beings. And while Mandela's life was celebrated around the world, Gaddafi was called a mad dog and killed in a most horrific way. And his country was devastated. Eccentric, yes. Mad, definitely not. Of the many crimes committed in the name of humanitarian intervention by the West, the destruction of Libya in 2011 must rate amongst the most wicked. Where the South has become a haven for terrorists, the North a centre of migrant trafficking against a backdrop of widespread rape, assassinations and torture in a state that has failed to the bone. Apart from the horrific impact on children, the nation's women have suffered the most. I visited Libya twice, once in 1979 to take part in an international conference on Palestine. Opened by Gaddafi, it was well organised and extraordinarily interesting. Palestinian leaders with a price on their heads and using aliases flew in from around the world. Many of their colleagues had been assassinated by Israeli hit squads. I met George Habash, head of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and Vanessa Redgrave, the English actress. We all welcomed a delegation from the newly elected Sandinista government in Nicaragua with a standing ovation, their debut on the international stage. And again in 1989, when it looked as if World War III was about to break out, after Washington accused Libya of building a chemical weapons plant at Raptor and was threatening to bomb the shit out of the country, unless Gaddafi promised to close the plant down and allow the US to inspect the site. We were assailed with the usual load of PR bull about Libya threatening world peace, which echoed around the world for most of January. People became nervous about the consequences, especially after two US fighter pilots chanting, good kill, good kill, shot down two Libyan planes over the Mediterranean, claiming self-defence. The Libyan pilots died. Small groups from around the world travelled to, to Libya to act as human shields, and I joined one from Australia and actually met Gaddafi in a Bedouin tent. And then in 1985, President Reagan lifted the ban on chemical weapons altogether and in 1988 openly admitted at an international conference to sharply increasing spending at Fort Derrick, which carries out some of the world's most diabolical experiments but Libya continued to be attacked as a major threat, regardless of who inhabited the White House. Gaddafi's agents were well and truly fitted up over the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, a crime 
Libya had nothing whatever to do with. And then there's Syria. In a repeat of history, the CIA and the Saudis united to launch a proxy war against Russia by supplying Islamist groups in Syria with advanced weapons and sophisticated missiles, a strategy with echoes of the secret war the CIA ran with the Saudis against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Long before the crackdown on peaceful protests, which were ardently supported by George W. Bush, the US was pushing for war with Syria as early as 2003, when US Secretary of State Colin Powell and his nasty sidekick John Bolton warned that Syria might be pursuing a weapons of mass destruction program, urging that action be taken, which of course was simply an extension of its long-standing policy of seeking to destroy the government in Damascus, which it saw as an impediment to achieving its goals in the Middle East to foster free market, free enterprise economies. And as an alternative direct military action, the US chose sanctions while giving massive military support to the internal Syrian opposition. Stripped of weasel words, the US demanded that Damascus must capitulate to Israel and end its support for militant groups seeking Palestinian self-determination like Hezbollah and must capitulate to Wall Street by transforming its mainly publicly owned economy. Israel's military intelligence chief, let the cat out of the brag, I think his name is Major General Hetzi Halevi, and he said that Israel prefers ISIS over the Syrian government, confirming that this is part of US plans aimed at Iran and beyond, which we hope that Russia's intervention has stymied. But what is infuriating is that almost all the West's news about Syria comes from the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, an extremely dodgy one-man outfit who sends out communiques from a suburban house in Coventry in the UK. It was founded in 2006 by a fellow calling himself Rami Abdul Rahman, although his real name is Osama Suleiman. Does he work for the CIA? MI6? No one knows. But we do know that he loathes the Syrian government. Hardly impartial, but his biased rubbish is used by all mainstream media outfits around the world, including our very own ABC. And the media's blind obedience to the US runs deep in Western journalism and ensures that the catastrophe in Syria is blamed exclusively on Bashar al-Assad, who the West and Israel have long conspired to overthrow, not for humanitarian reasons, but to consolidate Israel's violent power plays. And yet another humanitarian catastrophe, some say even greater than in Syria, but one we rarely hear about, this time in Yemen. Ostensibly a Saudi war, but with Saudis flying US fighter jets and, U and getting US intelligence about where to bomb a campaign that has boosted al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and left thousands of civilians dead, most of them women and children. Today's wars are carried out almost as a matter of course. No troop build-up, just massive airstrikes via unmanned drones operated by remote control, sometimes thousands of miles away. US wars in Syria and Iraq are part of a bigger plan aimed at Iran and ultimately Russia. So perhaps we're witnessing the end of the beginning. The most horrifying prospect is the lunatics 
that infest America's military establishment believe they can win a nuclear war. And as if all the stockpiles of bombs aren't enough, the current government, under Barack Obama, is planning to spend $1 trillion, $1 trillion more in replacing every single bomb, tank and missile. And you just think about how many hospitals, schools and health centres could be built and how many people could be housed and fed with that huge amount of money. What rage we should feel about such policies with our visions of the dead Syrian children, the children bombed to bits in Afghanistan and Pakistan from Obama's drones, the chaos of Libya, the wasteland of Iraq and destruction everywhere caused by American military intervention, which we supported and continue to support. I believe that only a huge mass movement that pours into every street that crosses borders and moves across the world can stop. Only that can stop these war criminals and this madness. So thank you. And thank you to the Melbourne Unitarian Church for the copy of that talk. And you can hear the talks that are at the church every Sunday morning. They are rebroadcast on 3CR the following Saturday for their program, the Melbourne Unitarian Half Hour, which goes to air every Saturday at 10.30. So thanks to Joan Coxedge. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. .au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Familiar happenings in Fitzroy and Footscray in the early days of the week are people enjoying vegan food supplied by volunteers with Food Not Bombs one of the 12 known groups in Australia and New Zealand. Food donated by fruit and vegetable traders and wholesalers, bakers, etc. Food that otherwise would be thrown out. One of those volunteers is Steph, who explains here when and why Food Not Bombs got going. Food Not Bombs was started by anti-nuclear activists in Massachusetts. Uh, I don't know so much of the backstory from them, 
But so um, it started in Massachusetts and it went around to some different activist groups in America. And then there was a big group uh, in San Francisco, which I actually thought it started in San Francisco, but I was wrong. <laughs> it's Massachusetts. But during 1988 to 1997, there was a lot of issues at the Golden Gate Park where they were serving the food. I think over like a thousand people got arrested for serving food there. And so then, you know, it got known about Food Not Bombs and then the group started in different places of the world about food equality and food's a right, not a privilege, all that sort of stuff. Do you know why they called it Food Not Bombs? I thought it was in relation to it being like anti-war, anti-nuclear, all that sort of stuff. But I haven't seen the story of why they chose those words. Now, it's branched out from the US to many countries in the world, including Mm. Australia. Do you know anything about the other countries apart from Australia? I know about the ones in uh, Belarus and Russia. There was some in Ukraine. I don't know if they're still happening. There's a whole bunch around, a whole bunch more around like Europe. Also in Asia. There's a few of them in Indonesia and Malaysia. And then I'm not sure about the other places. I think Japan as well. Yeah, there's um, on the website, foodnotbombs.net, shows you all the different places that have it. Sometimes you can get in touch with people, sometimes not, depending how old the details are. But they did update it about a year ago. What's the philosophy? I guess the whole thing is based on, you know, the idea that everybody should have the right to food and there's no hierarchy. It's, like, basically, like, anarchistic idea that everybody can be involved. Anyone can come and cook, anyone can come and eat, so it doesn't... It's not this specific idea that you have to be someone who is homeless or not well off or, you know, vice versa, to come and eat or to cook. So it's mainly about equality and the right to food and also, you know, all anti-war, anti-nuclear, all that sort of stuff too. And it's also using food that's going to waste or would go to waste. Yep, yep. I can talk for uh, in Melbourne, we get donated food from the markets and that's been happening for years I don't know I think I've done it for about six years and it's it's happened for more than that time since it started in Melbourne in 1996 so it's like 20 years so for most of that time the food's been donated without any issues Uh, in other places people go dumpster diving like looking um, for leftovers in bins or uh, leftovers at markets or people grow their own stuff as well so it just depends sort of on the place and what happens you don't go to supermarkets to ask them for leftovers, do you? No. no. We're, we're pretty good at the markets. <laughs> Probably better quality food. But people do bring us food as well. Um, so, example, on Friday nights when um, we do serving, there's some people that will bring us rice, like maybe once a month or something, a big bag of rice. And other places people will bring us other things as well, just I don't know, out of appreciation, just, you know, sharing. And it has to be good food. You're not going to accept food that's sort of starting to go off. Not off. I mean, the food may not be like fresh, fresh, but, you know, we're talented. (laughs) So it's not like, um, it's not rotten food. Like we're not serving up rotten stuff or anything. It's like we make sure like it's edible, of course. (laughs) Can you explain how you work on a weekly basis? You've got Mm -hmm. a kitchen somewhere? Yep. I'll start from Sunday because that's the most logical thing for me to think about. Uh, On Sunday, uh, we pick up vegetables from the market. The markets are closing. 
Then we bring um, the food back to the kitchen and we just, like, sort of organise the vegetables. And on Monday morning about 11 o'clock, people will start cooking and they'll take the food out to uh, the corner of Brunswick Street in King William, so right near the Atherton Gardens. And then on Monday nights, uh, we'll start cooking around 5 and then we take the food out to Footscray at the Western Oval on Barclay Street, like West Footscray side. And then on Tuesdays, if we need more uh, produce, then we'll go back to the market and get we can get that. Otherwise, um, people start cooking about 5 and they serve at 7.30 at the corner of Brunswick Street and Gertrude Street. What sort of f- food do you have? Can you tell us what... I forgot a really important part of the end. <laughs> at the end of the week, um, which I guess is... Wednesday, which is a strange part to be the end. We will take our compost to different places. That's sort of changing at the moment. Also, all the leftover vegetables we have, we'll take to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre just to keep flowing on the food. Yeah. What sort of things can you cook up? Uh, Or what sort of things do you cook up? So I'll talk about this week. (laughs) We got donated a bunch of pita breads, like small pita breads, and we made like fillings, like vegetable fillings, and put them in there in the oven. Uh, We made like a stir fry. We made a really mild curry, a salad, roast potatoes, a a cake. Yeah, like it's just sort of dependent on what we have to what sort of suits. And also like we're pretty aware of the, uh, like, regular people that come so if people have allergies or um they're not so good with spicy food or or whatever it may be then we just sort of try and cater a little bit for people because there's no point in making food if people aren't going to eat it Mm. and there's no animal products uh it's all vegan in melbourne um just so everybody can have access to the food so that just means like if you have any specific dietary things or beliefs or whatnot like the majority of people can eat it what do you do to get all your plates and utensils and your your pots and your pans? It must there must be a fair volume of stuff that you have to have, and you never really yeah. know how many people are going to come. Yeah, that's really true. <laughs> so I guess we've had a lot of the stuff for a long time because Funeral Bombs in Melbourne has been going for about twenty years, and the plates and stuff is quite easy. For, you know, they're just easy things to acquire. I guess like people just generally give you that sort of stuff people go overseas or whatever the pots and stuff they've all, we've also had a lot of them for a, a few years because they've like big heavy duty ones also there's been kitchens uh like loophole used to do food not bombs which was the community center in thornbury and so i guess we've been given some of their stuff as well and some people just give us give us things or give us some money and if we need to replace something we'll just organize it and, of course, you've got to have a van to carry your food. I don't know if you have to have a van. We just seem to have one. <laughs> we were given one, like, years ago, and then we've sort of replaced them over the years, which is also a really good way to, like, take food to different areas. But you don't necessarily have to have a van. It just seems to be how it works. It does get used, like, throughout the community as well, which is a good thing. Do you change your venue at all? You said you're in King William and Brunswick Street and the the um, football ground at Footscray. Mm-hmm. Do you change different areas at all mm-hmm. or no, no. never have? We've been in those same areas for a long time. Of course, when there was one at Loophole, it was up in Thornbury. And there was talk about trying to do something in maybe Flemington or Coburg, but it just hasn't 
nothing has happened from the discussions. <laughs> you, you, you know, you need a few people who are going to definitely commit to doing the certain nights and everything and people who can drive or, or whatnot as well. How many people do you reckon you'd have on a weekly basis here in, in your two venues for Melbourne? To cook, prepare, to serve. Mm. How many people? It's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. I guess there's probably up to 15 people. And maybe about 10 of them are like totally coming every week. Yeah, it's about that. And then there's people who who will come in sporadically, but you know that they're going to come in sporadically or whatnot as well. Do you also go to other places and cook for venues, protests, yeah, yeah, different things definitely. like that. Can you explain some of the things that you do there? Yeah, um, um, we've done it for 3CR as well, <laughs> for meetings and whatnot and for training. People just generally get into contact with us. So we have an a email which is fnbmelb, so fnbmelb at riseup.net. People just usually email us um, and ask us or, you know, if people know someone who does food up bombs or anything like that, they're just getting to contact. Uh, and we can do some catering or just help do food for events as well. It depends if people who do it are available, but it usually works out. Is there any way that you can take food to people who can't get to the places where you're cooking? We've if you done know- that before, like uh, for an older guy. Um, we used to come, go and see him, not every week, but some. also some people at the serving used to bring him food as well. So that's the only time I can think when someone's not been able to come and people have sort of organised for them. But I only do one night, so I don't know. <laughs> Must be great satisfying, though, to know that you're, you're not only helping people, but you're saving food as well. Yeah, like all in all, it's really good because um, it's also... We can sometimes organise food to give to people who might not have the money to access different types of food and because mostly the food that we get is organic as well, so that's like that's a nice thing. Yeah, so people might be able to get food that they wouldn't have been able to afford before or just like different types of food that they've never seen or whatnot as well. Do you have any connections with the, the groups overseas or are you totally autonomous? I guess we're, we're separate but we... Sometimes people will come over from different food not bombs. Like, uh, there's someone here at the moment who's from America, and they've done food not bombs over there, uh, and also from different places in Europe. I guess yeah, we don't really connect that much. Maybe because it's such a big thing, a big thing to do that we don't really stop and think about the other groups so much. How do people go about setting up their own? Is that possible, or do you do you like yeah. people to? stay in a certain area or no, they can do what they like. Pe- people can do what they want. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's been a group uh, in Bendigo that I think there's going to be a group that might start in Castlemaine, from what I've heard. <laughs> um, so it's so mainly really a city good. thing, is it? It's a lot of a city thing, so it's really nice that, you know, it's out in different places. But if people want help and support with that stuff, I think it's good to talk to different groups and see how it goes. We've even had a friend who was talking about trying to do something in Coburg and they came along and saw, like, what we did and all the stuff we have and, you know, it was just good for someone to see how it works because it's not maybe... It's not difficult, but it's just like, oh, yeah, you need to have cutlery. 
Like you need to have the plates. How are people going to wash the plates? Are you going to do disposable stuff? How does that work and everything? Mm. Totally different to a soup kitchen sort of run by the Salvation Army or places like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Different. It's a totally different thing because, like, they're just filling this sort of gap. And I guess, it, I mean, it's good because people are still getting food. It's not like a negative thing. But it's also, you know, the the people that serve are not necessarily the people that cook and how much they cater for people in the area is, like, you know, they'll still have, like, lots of, you know, ham and cheese sandwiches and this and this, and if you ask them what's in the soup, they don't know. So if you be vegan or you have allergies or, like, whatever, they don't generally have that information. Whereas we can just be like, yeah, it has this, this, this in it, and we have takeaway containers so people can take stuff home if if they don't want to eat there or they have friends they want to take stuff to. How do people get involved? They can contact us on our email, uh, which is the fnbmelb at riseup.net. We do have blog, which is Food Not Bombs on No Blogs. So I think if you... If you look that up on the internet, you'll find it because it escapes me how that whole line goes. That's probably the best ways. Um, we used to put a phone number out, but then we get some random phone calls, so we stopped doing that. And that's Steph talking about food, not bombs. And that um, email address is fnbmelb at riseup, R-I-S-E-U-P dot net. And it's coming up to 15 minutes past five o'clock. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. On the program late last month, Chandarev Singh, long-time prison reform activist, spoke on the sewer program, the Squatters and Unwaged Workers program here at 3CR, about incarceration of young people and adults in Australian prisons. The second part of the interview looks at the rate of private prisons in Australia, and Singh is speaking with Peter. Australia has in the whole modern-day privatisation of, of prisons remains the most extensively and an extreme model of privatisation anywhere in the world in terms of profit and in terms of scope and depth. All onshore detention centres are privatised. You know, and Serco is, only, is the third company to hold those contracts. G4S and before that, Wackenhut, we kind of four and a half years on the back of extreme scandal of the type we've seen in the Mm. last week. There's a renaming, a rebranding and and an attempt to shift away from the name. So in detention centres here were first privatised in October 97 when ACM, which was Wackenhut, Australasian Correctional Management, won those contracts. And as of October 1999, you know, in the building of Woomera and Curtin, contracts became the most lucrative single contracts in the world because they clustered together all of these different prisons 
and a massive expansion of those prisons. And one of the things that increased the profit of those contracts were the uprisings that happened in Ketman Woomera because the government responded by a greater degree of imprisonisation physically, palisade fencing, the introduction of riot squads, the first time that water cannon was used, first time there was a you know mass tear gassing of children and women and, and, and men. And all of those kind of repressive technologies came from ACM's other prisons. The CERT teams that were used, the critical incident response teams, the riot squads, all came from ACM's other prisons. So you saw a, an immediate and rapid imprisonisation of immigration detention consistent with privatisation, saw the use of prolonged solitary confinement for children, for women, for men in Port Hedland Detention Centre in a block called Juliet. And from that, people began dying in custody. So we've had 53 deaths in custody since December 2000. None of them are counted by the Commonwealth. In this country, there's a death in custody every three and a half days, forms of different custody, you know, including deaths in immigration detentions. That's just within this country that immigration detention, unlike anywhere else in the world, is completely in the hands of privatisation. Not just the incarceration elements, but all of the health care, in quotation marks, is privatised to international health and medical services. Offshore, in terms of Manus scenario, again, profoundly privatised. Initially to G4S, and then to Broad Spectrum Transfield, and then their subcontractors, Wilson and IHMS. Again, those two contracts globally are the most lucrative contracts in the world. Mm. Rovial has bought Broad Spectrum yeah, and is right. saying, just saying, that they won't continue the contract, but they're continuing it now. They haven't divested yeah, now yes. because the contracts are continuing. And another aspect of also that is some protests people have done in Melbourne is because people don't associate Wilson parking with yeah. Wilson Security, which also yeah. has contracts. Wilson provide the guards. You know, Wilson is a critical part of the whole machinery of mass indefinite immigration, incarceration. But the thing that these companies are doing internationally is that they are saying to countries and economic blocs like the EU, we can incarcerate, we can detain all of your refugees and asylum seekers en masse through one contract. That's what the Australian government has structurally provided them, that ability to say we are global in our reach and global in our response. And then if you want to build offshore detention centres, whether it's in the Mediterranean or North America or mm. North Africa, we've done that too. We've tested and tried, and yes, people have been murdered. Yes, people have set themselves on fire, but we've managed that too. We've managed the risk of that. And that's their calling card. That's their international commodified product is their ability to detain people on a mass scale anywhere in the most remote parts of this country and the world. And as you were saying, you know, prison being the, the testing ground, the crucible of repressive technology and ideology and capitalism, private prisons in the context where the state empowers them to this degree and then they, you know, able to power to do all of these things. It really is that model of predatory global capitalism that, you know, emanates from this country, which is so kind of foundational. It's like a reverse first fleet, really. The second fleet was contracted out to a company called Camden, Calvert & King, London-based company, who were engaged, were contractors engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. And they converted slave ships to convict hulks. By the time the second fleet arrived in Sydney Cove, either half of the people imprisoned on, the, on those ships had either died on the journey or died upon 
landing on Gadigal country. That was the first lesson of privatised incarceration in this country. And then you had the whole privatisation of labour in the convict lease system mm. and the use of prison labour to build the prison state. So if you go to Hungary now, they use prison labour to build razor wire and border fences to keep refugees out. There is this fundamental intermeshing of the use mm. of prisoners' lives and bodies and labour to enlarge the capacity for profit and the capacity for exclusion and the capacity for incarceration. If you step deeper in to the country and look at our prisons, we have the most number of people in prisons, in private prisons, anywhere in the world. In America, you know, 7% are state prisoners in private prisons. In Australia here, it's 20%. Victoria, it's about 50% of me. Legacy of Kennett, I remember. Yes. Yeah, you know, mm. absolute legacy mm. of Kennett. You know, continued by ALP and LMP, and it's indivisible. It no longer mm. matters. They so, reproduce their own uh, carceral kind of capitalism. You know, in terms of people in police custody in Victoria, about 20% are in the... Are, are run in privatised prisons, like the Melbourne Custody Centre, mm. a few minutes away from where we're broadcast. Mm. You know, in Victoria, we had the first private women's prison in 1996 outside of the United States. 80, 85% of women in Victoria were held there. Mm. And that prison, after almost four years, was forcibly taken back, back by the state. Because of the amount of abuses. and The amount of abuse and, and, the, and the fear mm. of a mass fire there that mm. would kill... Like Jaika Jaika in the exactly. old days. Exactly, that would kill dozens if not more women. And the things that happened there, the tear gassing of women, that happened months after the prison opened, the deaths in custody there, the extent of violence there, all kind of structural to that. The company that had that contract almost disappeared from Australia, you know, has just won a contract for a nano women's prison in WA, you know, right. where are overwhelmingly Aboriginal women mm you know, where they've had deaths in custody. I mean, WA has one of the worst prisons, if you can compare them, in, in the country, which is Bandiat Women's Prison. You know, and now Sodexo, the company, which was a 50% consortium owner of the women's prison in Deer Park, has got that contract and is whitewashing its history in Victoria, seeking to distance itself. So that, that whole movement of these companies and their capacity to say to state governments, you need 3,000 extra beds, that'll cost you $6 billion. we can deliver in 18 months. You know, the question of what you could do with $6 billion in a community, the choice that that yeah. offers up, the opportunity yeah. that that offers up, not just to respond to issues that drive criminalisation and drive incarceration, is never asked, it's completely skipped over, it's completely ripped away from a community when you have companies saying, we'll solve your you know, mass incarceration issues. Do you know about this New South Wales privatisation program they're going to start in up there? Sure. Well, New South Wales is the second state in Australia to engage in privatisation. They opened their junior prison in the early 90s, which is now one of the biggest prisons in New South Wales, as is our two private prisons here in Victoria. And we're opening a third massive prison soon. After junior, they went through a second phase of privatising two other mm -hmm. prisons, Parkley and Anana Prison. Mm -hmm. And now they're looking at building prisons with a capacity of 3,000 cells. You know, it used to be almost the entire Victorian prison system in one prison. They are accelerating um, mass incarceration in ways that, you know, really haven't been seen since 1788, you know, in terms of expansion. And maybe because I'm in and out of prison so much, but it becomes defining of a community, the level of fear, the lack of sense of any safety mm. by the proportion of people going to prison and the proportion of spending on prison. You know, I always ask people, you know, during the labour times, you know, incarceration of women doubled. 
I ask people, you feel safer now? I've never been able to engage with people who feel safer because we've engaged in mass incarceration. Everyone feels less safe. Everyone sees violence more, feels violence more. Everyone can see the markers of the prison in the violence occurring in the community. That's something we need to think about when we're thinking about these issues around mass incarceration. Who goes there about the criminalisation of mental illness, the criminalisation of disability, the criminalisation of gender, the fact that transgender people are massively disproportionately represented, the hyper-incarceration of Aboriginal people, especially Aboriginal women and children. Mm. Well, that's what mass incarceration looks like. Every time I go into prison, it's, it's blacker than before. I'm a person of colour and I'm looking at you know, the only people I visit are Aboriginal people and young people of colour. What does that look like and feel like in a community for that to be happening? And it takes a long, long time for a critical literacy to develop around that. And that's only happened in the United States for the last, really the last five to ten years, where there's been a, a discussion and a, an, an attempt to redress and address the implications of 40 years of mass racialised incarceration. The Attica uprising... Mm -hmm mark the beginning of the massive increase in state repression. To me, it was kind of like the vanguard. They're the ones going down fighting because they saw what was coming. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. They saw what was coming and they, the Attica brothers fought against it with their lives. And that yeah. was that call, I'm human. Yeah. You know, and that's still the call. These are what these young people in Dondale are saying. You know, I'm a human. I can't breathe. But... Um, you know, these are profound political questions. It, it is matters of politics that drives who goes to prison, how long they are in there, the violence of that system and the violence that is kind of pushed out of, you know, prisons. Prisons are vectors of violence and mm. vectors of ill health and vectors of disability and they suck away resources that we as a community need in the community. Education, housing, health, different forms of justice different forms of access, dignified work, employment, all these things that resources are needed for, that structures and communities are needed for, that people are needed for. How can you operate family and have family and have community when one in three members of the community are in and out of prison? You live in a, in, in, at the periphery of a prison state, which renders many lives expendable. And thanks to the sewer program for that segment of their program which looked at, I think it was an anniversary of the Attica prison. I'm not sure whether it was a riot or a repression, but many, many people died and things did change a bit after that. But when you look at the prison system in the United States and also here, got a long way to go. That was Singh. Singh is a former presenter of the Doing Time program here at 3CR many years ago. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 
Oh, no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment? Yes, you say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes, say... No, no comment. comment! If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. Finally on Tuesday Home Time here at 3CR, it would appear that the end is nearing for President Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, the man who led two independent wars and ruled the southern African nation for 36 years. But is it easy to call the end of Mugabe too early? I put this question to human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. Yes, of course it is, because it's been done many, many times already. <laughs> but it seems that in this last week or so, clearly his failing health has you know, had a really big uh, fall again. And uh, perhaps we are you know, in the last part of his life now. Even if he, he stays alive, it seems that he's in, not really capable at all of uh, performing the function of a head of state. He had a collapse at the SADC summit uh, last Tuesday in uh, Swaziland, and then he seems to have decided to travel to Singapore, perhaps for medical treatment, but only reached Dubai, where he had to be put in hospital. And then, after a couple of days there, he's returned to Harare on Sunday. He got off the plane. Apparently this was televised, but he, he could barely walk, very much struggling to shuffle along. He seems to have attended a ZANU-PF youth rally in Harare, uh, which he denounced uh, protests against his government, but his speech was incredibly slurred. So uh, he's, he, you know, he's, he's virtually demonstrated, I think, to the public that he's really at the end of the road. He hasn't been seen since uh, Sunday. Now, in the previous week, the police had announced that they were going to uh, suppress all demonstrations in Harare. They declared some kind of state of emergency. The word was put out informally that they, they were prepared to shoot people who came onto the streets to protest. So the whole protest movement declared that for the two weeks of this state of emergency they wouldn't protest. But then this event around Mugabe's health and his obvious collapse happened and, uh, and his, his crazy speech he gave. So it's all turned around again. And uh, yesterday there were demonstrations in Harare. Again, they were tear-gassed and people were arrested but as far as I can tell from what I can see, no, no reports of anyone being shot. This protest was organised by the, the National Union of Vendors of Zimbabwe and a youth protest movement called Tajamuka. However, it had the sympathy of all of the other opposition forces, political parties and other organisations. So I, I think that the tempo of uh, protest has uh, actually gone up a notch and... Uh, it's, again, hard to predict what will happen, but I think we're seeing a moment where 
Mugabe and his family will be trying to assure themselves of some continuation in power once Robert Mugabe dies or is, you know, totally incapacitated. It seems he's had a stroke or several strokes. And on the other hand, I think the uh, the securocrats, as they're called in Zimbabwe, the, most of the generals, intelligence people, uh, they don't want Grace Mugabe to become the uh, effective head of state. So there's going to be some kind of showdown, first of all, within the ZANU-PF bloc, and then there would be some kind of showdown between the government, whoever it is, and the people who are extremely desperate now because of the pretty well the disappearance of, of currency from the country. So, you know, it's a, a very, very desperate society and they're witnessing in front of their eyes the uh, collapse of the dictatorship, at least in the person of Robert Mugabe. Has he, in fact, been operating at the top for many, many years, like the last few years, because he is over 90. Now he's over 90, yeah. He's has, has he, 92, I think. Has he been the top man, or has he sort of stepped back a bit and let the others take over? Well, I think he's the key to the regime. So uh, clearly he's, uh, his health has failed a lot in this last, say, two years, but it seems that he's still a key operator. So... Uh, He's been the person who's uh, demoted people in the cabinet, you know, when they walk into the room. No one else did it. Um, He's been the person who's sacked ministers. He's been the person, in the end, who called the shots at the ZANU-PF Congress about uh, 18 months ago, at which uh, there was a major purge of one group of contenders for the succession around Joyce Mujuru. So I think that, you know, obviously no one does everything, and for a long time, he's been the, the kingpin of a collective dictatorship. He's, I think, a scary person capable of organising murders. Therefore, I think he's, he's still a very powerful figure. But clearly, once somebody has strokes, cannot talk, you know, in, in the end, they cannot keep on, on top of the situation and have to be like a figurehead for others. So I think we're definitely in that period now. But that may only really be in the last, you know, a couple of months. But a powerful figure in a country that's falling apart, surely. Yes, but uh, depends on your, you know, theories of history and politics and so on, how to understand a situation like this. But poor and desperate as the whole country is, there, there is no uh, political power stronger at this point than the dictatorship. So there's obviously a shift of power happening, but at this, up to this point... The security forces have stayed united. They've been rather brutal in the last couple of weeks, really brutal. But uh, they also are suffering from the economic collapse with many of the ordinary ranks and even officers of the military and police now not getting paid or not getting paid in time, and they're very, very unhappy. But for now, even up to today, they've stayed united. But this is one of the things that will change, I think, in the next little while. Who is the opposition? What happened to the movement for democratic change? About two years ago, it, uh, after, after the, the um, 2013 election, so it's even three years now, within six to nine months, there was three splits from the movement for democratic change, and there was already one from 2005. So we've got about four political parties which emerged out of 
the movement for democratic change. And they're all still operating um, at some level or other today. And uh, as well as that, you have Joyce Majuru and uh, the group of people with her who were expelled from ZANU-PF at the end of 2014. They finally, early this year, I think, launched a, a political party called Zimbabwe People First. So it's still called ZPF, which is very similar to ZANU-PF in acronyms, um, but people first. So uh, it uh, has been a bit underwhelming, I think, in its uh, popular impact. But the recent uh, August 26th demonstration, which was called by Morgan Changarai from the, the May MDC group and uh, Joyce Majuru from Zimbabwe People First, was was a, a bit of a showdown with the regime, and it was crushed with uh, tear gas and batons uh, and a lot of people arrested. Those two groups uh, around Morgan Changarai and Joyce Majuru are still pretty important in the politics of opposition. But um, their capacity to really mobilise people is pretty shaky, I would say. So other demonstrations which have been called have been very small, but that one on August 26, uh, which was really provoked by the threat to issue another sort of phony currency uh, to replace the US dollar, was a, a good, a good solid protest and uh, demonstrated their ongoing capacity, I think. You're talking about 85% unemployment. How are the people managing? Well, they're not really managing. That's the thing, uh, Jan. I think... Uh, you can just say that most uh, most systems don't work in Zimbabwe. The schools are struggling to exist, and a lot of teachers, because they're not getting paid, are not going to school. So there's no teachers. The uh, medical network has just got no staff and no medicines. It's only private clinics which can provide services. Agricultural sector is underperforming, and it had a, b- a bad problem with the El Nino. So you know this somewhere between 2.2 and 3 million people getting fed by the World Food Program. And I think that number is expected to rise by the end of this year. People rely on money being sent to them by their relatives from uh, South Africa or other neighbouring countries or from you know, Western countries like the UK or Australia, New Zealand. And uh, they're bartering. You know, People are just just using their very last resources to survive. So there's a lot more home gardens and um, people have gone vegetarian because they cannot afford meat. All of, all of this is happening. There's a lot of theft that's also happening. Could a tipping point be if South Africa, who has big problems with high unemployment and the economy going down, if they forced many of the million people who are now in South Africa, back into Zimbabwe? Well, of course, that would be uh, a big problem all around. But I don't see any sign of, of that happening. There's, there's well over one million Zimbabweans in South Africa. People sometimes think it's three or four million. Those people are a pretty important part of the workforce in South Africa, even if it's got high unemployment. In Zimbabwe's unemployment is massively higher than South Africa's. And those uh, remittances from those people are very important for the survival of people in Zimbabwe. However, I think that South Africa, with its problems, and now it's got serious political problems for the ANC government, 
is much more motivated to pay attention to Zimbabwe than it was, say, even two years ago. And uh, this a recent thing happened because most of the imports into Zimbabwe come from South Africa. So bad as the economics are, it's still an important market for South Africa. And um, about six weeks ago, the government of Zimbabwe imposed uh, bans on the imports of a lot of products from South Africa at the border, allegedly to uh, provide some kind of support for local industry. So at the border crossing, there's been riots and uh, violence, quite significant protests with the sympathy of the South African government. And then about two weeks ago, one day, the South African uh, Electricity Commission, ESCOM, just switched off the power to Zimbabwe. They did it for about nine hours. Basically, they said there, there wasn't enough supply to provide power inside South Africa as well as to Zimbabwe, so they shed the, the load. But I think it's also... a bit of body language from South Africa to Zimbabwe that they're running out of patience, especially over the uh, banning of the imports from South Africa. So, you know, it's uh, also that the African National Congress did very, very badly in the recent local government elections in uh, South Africa, and they may well, you know, it's not, not a good motivation if you ask me, but they may well say, oh, let's distract attention from our problem domestically by doing something positive about the, you know, a transition from Mugabe and getting rid of this problem in uh, Zimbabwe. That may be something that's, that's taking place. OK, we'll have to watch that one. While Mugabe may be on his way out, uh, on the other side of the world, another president is setting, settling in, and that's Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, Peter, we had arranged to talk about peace talks, the release of political prisoners, as well as the alarming number of people similarly executed for allegedly being part of the drug trade in the Philippines. Then last Friday, a bomb blast in Davao City, killing 14 and wounding an estimated 70. From what I've read, it's not a first for central Mindanao? No, but it is the first bombing in Davao City for a long time, and it was targeted at a at a venue outside a hotel and in a marketplace that's often visited by the president, and uh, he was in Davao City. So are there links between the bombing and the issues that we were going to talk about? I do think so. It's so hard to uh, really understand all of the dynamics going on in the Philippines right now because the new regime is, is is sort of a rupture from the past culture of politics. So uh, Duterte represents some kind of break from the oligarchic, utterly complacent and uh, completely uh, unsympathetic type of government that, the, say, the previous president, uh, Benigno Aquino, uh, represented, but many, many of the previous presidencies, perhaps except for Joseph Estrada at the end of the 1990s. You know, this, this, it's, un, it's uncorked a bottle in a sense that he said, I'm here to make a difference and I'm going to throw my weight around to make sure something happens. And a lot of people are very unhappy with, uh, naturally, with the uh, impact of all of these killings in allegedly involving drug addicts, drug pushers, drug kingpins and so on. In these two months and one week of uh, his presidency, the reports say over 2,000 people have been killed, about one-third of them killed by drug syndicates and two-thirds killed by the police. So it's really a massive bloodbath taking place 
in the name of the war on drugs. So that's that, there's that going on, and you could imagine that the bombing in Davao last Friday night may be related to some drug syndicate retaliation against the president. As well as that, there's been, uh, from the time of his election campaigning, Duterte made many statements about the need for peace talks with the insurgencies, which is principally the National Democratic Front and the New People's Army, and uh, also the diff- there's two different Moro liberation forces with armed groups in, in Mindanao, and then there's a third, much smaller group called Abu Sayyaf, which listeners might have heard of, in the far southwest of Mindanao. Duterte was successful in, in having good discussions with the uh, Moro, two Moro groups, and also um, in Oslo and Norway in uh, the last, you know, August 22 to 26, there was successful peace talks held in Oslo and Norway uh, with the National Democratic Front. And uh, from, you know, there was a bit of trouble uh, in getting ceasefires uh, set up in July and in August, but now there's uh, separate unilateral ceasefires ongoing by the armed forces of the Philippines and the National Democratic Front forces on the New People's Army. And that's, uh, a f- you know, hasn't happened since uh, the very first couple of months of uh, Aquino's presidency back, back in 2010. It's a big relief, I think, uh, to everybody. As well as that, as part of the peace talks, there's about uh, 509 political prisoners and uh, about 20 of them got released on bail only and were able to go to Oslo and take part in the talks, which really energised them a lot, I think. Then, uh, as part of the next month, there will be proclamations of uh, amnesty for all of those 509, so they should all be released before the talks recommence, which is expected on October 8. So there's, there's been quite a bit of action there, all preliminary in a sense, not yet uh, substantive, but very much reassuring everybody that this time there will be a serious effort to negotiate major policy changes which would enable the the armed conflict to to stop. That's a good promising outlook and it contrasts with the, you know, great uh, sense of uh, disgust and unease and uh, revulsion at the the war on drugs uh, dynamic going on. And then we've got a third dimension now. It's coming to play because President Obama uh, went to the G20 and then he wanted to meet with President Duterte and now that meeting's been cancelled. There's a lot of uh, uh, abrasiveness between Duterte now and the, uh, the big power, the big brother in the Philippines, which is the US. It's hard, it's hard to know, you know exactly which is the thing that's motivating it. Is it the ceasefire and the talks with the communists, which I'm sure the US administration is not happy about, or is it directly about the South China Sea issue? Uh, it could be. But uh, Obama chose to make it you know, the problem about the human rights uh, involved with the purge of the drug sector. And uh, Duterte really railed against him uh, over that, and uh, and then Obama cancelled the meeting. I think you know you'd have to you'd have to say the bombing that happened in in Davao City on Friday night may well be connected to those two things or one of those things too. It's it's possible. Certainly, the military establishment is very unhappy about the peace talks, and there would be efforts made to derail it. And there's been a few just. Uh, 
actions which uh, are con continuations of the counterinsurgency strategy of the previous government, which uh, directly counter to the idea that there should be peace talks between the NDF and the government. There was an uh, you know, absurd uh, arrest of a, uh, a religious figure in uh, Cebu City a couple of weeks ago because uh, she is, this woman is 64 years old, a teacher, and she's responsible for a lot of schools in the indigenous people's areas in Mindanao that people are called LUMAD. And uh, she was arrested on an absurd allegation that she was a New People's Army commander who ran ambushes. This had been typical of the last you know, decade or, or more, this type of uh, absurd trumped-up charge, but it happened during Duterte's presidency while he's trying to have peace talks. So you can see it's an undermining. Another counterpoint to that is in, in, in relation to the LUMAD people. There was uh, September 1... This year was uh, the first anniversary of a terribly brutal murder of three important community leaders involved with these schools. About 1,000 people had to evacuate from that area where those killings took place, and they've been uh, in a sort of basketball court centre in, in a city in, on the coastline, and uh, they've been uh, demanding that the military be removed from their lands and that they be able to go back, and, and they got an agreement with the military commander in the region for that to happen and just this week they've been marching back to take up uh, their farms and their schools and their community again so that's taken as a very positive thing so there you know this is very early days in the process there's a lot of difficulties with the military and i would i would just uh, speculate that even the war on drugs um, horror you know, has a has got a quite a important political function probably in Duterte's mind that uh, the drug business is a really big organised crime business. And so at the top of it are really important business people and military and police figures, and so he's he's really challenging the military and police to decide. You know, are they on on the side of uh, the law and against the drug? crime or are they part of the drug crime and if they are you know they'll, they'll get the worst treatment is his threat well they can also threaten back but um it may be his way of trying to you know neutralize potentially serious uh, opposition from the security forces to his presidency is there hypocrisy of a sort from obama to criticize duterte when hundreds of thousands of drug users and dealers are in jails in the US on their war on drugs. Yes, well, it's it's so obvious to outside eyes, you know, the, the hypocrisy you know, of a many, many US government statements about human rights. So, yes, it's, it's sort of a bit breathtaking. On the other hand, everybody should uh, be quite uh, strong in objecting to this uh, arbitrary justice that people just get shot down in the street and a bit of cardboard thrown on their bleeding body to say, oh, they were killed because they were drug peddlers or drug users. This uh, is completely against any basic sense of law and order, yeah, no matter how what you think about the, the drug culture, the drug problem and so on. So, you know, it was easy for Obama to use it, but it's sort of, it's, it's sort of uh, stupid of him to use it uh, as well. So... Uh, yeah, it's it's a negative. The whole thing's a bit of a negative dynamic. Really, what's necessary is that um, Duterte and Obama do talk about really big issues of 
U.S. policy in the Philippines and U.S. military uh, deployments into the Philippines and the, the danger of uh, Filipino people being some kind of cannon fodder in a hot war between U.S. and Chinese forces. That would be you know, the, the concern of any sensible person in the Philippines. So I, th I think let's hope that the shadow boxing finishes and, and there is, in the end, a sort of clear air for some discussion about those issues between the two leaders. But are the US bases up and running in the Philippines now? Yeah, they've had access to any, U any Filipino military facility for 17 years now, since 1999. And uh, under a recent agreement signed, I think, two years ago, and it's sort of an enhanced defence cooperation agreement, they will build five, five new bases, I think, in Mindanao alone maybe two or three more in other parts of the country. So in a sense, it's, it's sort of getting bigger and it's all to do allegedly with the China containment strategy. But uh, the idea that the US would have a, a significant naval base at Subic Bay again is pretty revolting, um, considering all the trouble people went to, to to get it removed in 1991. Well, it seems that the ABSAF aren't going to go away if you've rearming sort of Mindanao with all these bases? I think Abu Sayyaf is a sort of a mystery group. They've been operating uh, since 1994 and there's some kind of connection between the Afghanistan war and the CIA, etc., and, and this Abu Sayyaf group. I've always taken the view that they're a sort of a mercenary gangster group and their, their main operation is to kidnap people and get ransoms. But apparently they also do have some kind of Islamic ideological position as well. And in all these years, you know, since 1994, it's over 20 years, it's always been said that there's only 200 of them. You know, despite all of the conflicts and, and allegedly the deployment of US forces to destroy them, they're still there. So I think that there's a lot of corruption going on there and that they're sort of, uh, in a sense, a useful tool uh, for the Philippines military and even perhaps for the American military to have them there to use them to demonstrate the need for ongoing U.S. deployment and there's an ongoing terror threat and so on. But uh, because they, you know, when the MILF and MNLF and NDF all started talking with Duterte's government, Abu Sayyaf said no. So, again, this is typical Duterte. He, he said, OK, I'll kill you, and uh, deployed an extra 2,500 soldiers to the two islands where they basically operate from. And um, I, I don't know whether they will succeed in doing that. It could just, again, be all for show. And it's also possible Abu Sayyaf did the bombing in, in Davao City in retaliation for that. But uh, in the past, they haven't done bombings. So it's, it's a, it'll be a departure from their normal approach. And in the meantime, the encirclement of China continues. Yes, the rhetoric here in Australia and in other parts of the region is getting hotter and it seems to be being pushed by US military figures you know, who make visits to the region. I do think uh, the underlying dynamic is a US versus China clash over broad you know, hegemony of, in the area. The issue about whether you can fish here or there's oil or gas there, I think, is quite secondary. And I think, you know, that the Chinese government haven't demonstrated anything but a heavy-handed approach to all of their neighbours who they have to live with for, you know, forever. It's not good to see that. 
On the other hand, it's absurd to see the US claiming that um, they're there to ensure freedom of trade when most of the shipping goes to China that goes through those waters. It's, it's a bit of a crude uh, power play by the United States and I, I really wonder whether people believe that um, you know, we can only have a, a good global order if the United States uh, can dominate the South China Sea. It's, it's to me, completely wrong-headed. But uh, I think that the, the truth of the uh, situation is, is getting more clear because of these US military comments. And uh, hopefully, if it's clearer, somehow uh, after this uh, International Court of Justice ruling, there can be a, a better negotiation go on. But we're not seeing yet you know, any, any sort of form for that. Thank you once again, Peter. Okay, Jan. And that was Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Done by Law will be here in about one and a bit minute. Bye for now.